Before we get to our guest, a quick message from our sponsor. We've had the COVID virus, and now we have the monkeypox virus. And we found out that a month or two before each of them, there were simulations of how they might be spread upon the world. What do our globalist masters have in store for us next? You can be sure there's something. But what can you do about it? The best thing you can do is to keep your immune system resistant, resilient, and clean. You can do that by going to zstacklife.com. Dr. Zelenko has developed a system, a protocol supplement system that has saved thousands of patients that he treated with very few hospitalizations. You can go to zstacklife.com and get the ZStack protocol. You can get the protocol for children and the detox formula. If you go to zstacklife.com and use promo code CDM, you can get a 5% discount for off all of the products. So keep your immune system healthy as we wait for the next virus to come down the pike. Go to promo to go to zstacklife.com and use promo code CDM for a 5% discount. And now let's get to our guest. Well, Thank you so much, Todd, for this, I don't know, is it the seventh episode of our podcast, which, you know, we quit this week, what we might as well call the Toddcast. So the, the man um, himself, who's now been even to Tucker Carlson, so we were all quite impressed finding out new things about the many life of Todd Wood. Um, so it, a, lot, a lot has happened, obviously, um, this week in Europe and beyond, obviously. And obviously, the, the one thing, the one wild card in Europe is always, well, obviously has been um, Germany for quite a while and has been Russia. But sort of, it's almost ridiculous how intertwined both of um, these countries have become. But how much um, can, how, how much that gives us in terms of analysis, in terms of who's behind it, what kind of power structures are we facing these days? that are responsible for this weird mutual embrace of Germany and Russia where the German elites for long and vilified Russia at the same time got more and more dependent on this. Um, and for once, and probably the, for, for maybe the only time of since this podcast will exist, The Guardian actually had a very, very good uh, analysis on this. I, I hate to say so, I, 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 I had to wash, wash out my mouth with holy water to, to bring it over me to say that, but it was actually in most parts the best analysis I've read about this. That Christian, let me jump in real quick and say that the Eurobytes is now on all podcast platforms, so you can go back and watch the old episodes or listen to the old episodes on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, uh, and elsewhere. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. And with, mm -hmm. with that being said, so now that I've just been um, singing The Guardian's high praise, at least for that one article, there's mm -hmm. obviously that's... that's uh, an outlier in terms of the quality of what The Guardian ordinarily writes. But the historical roots of this oil dependency between Germany and Russia run deep. And why that is, and in terms of, it is really interesting, there is a mutual um, back and forth between the Germans and the Americans. No, you are naive about it. No, you are naive and you don't understand Russia as much as we do. And probably Fabian, um, would you like to kick us off with the historical roots of that oil dependency, which I learned through The Guardian didn't start with Schroeder in the 1990s, but actually starts way earlier, as early as the 1970s. Fabian, would you kick us off with a historical well, dimension? It's, it's actually interesting because um, I'll, I, I read Klaus von Donani's book, and I'm going to go into that for a second, uh, a little bit later in the show. But... Um, 
the I, the quintessence of the Guardian's article is that Germany's dependence goes back to the 1970s when um, Willy Brandt was um, Chancellor of Germany. Um, just a quick historical note, and I learned this um, recently, that the um, this debate about uh, natural resources from uh, Russia actually goes back to 1922 to the Treaty of Rapallo. So this is something that um, is in the late years after World War One. So four years after the end of the war, where Germany, um, at this time already the Weimar Republic and the, uh, the Soviet Union, wanted to sign a deal um, about reducing American um, the supply of American oil to to Germany. Um, so Germany's dependence on, on on oil from America should be reduced at that time. And so the nineteen seventy deal that the the Guardian then mentions is is if you will a, a just another chapter in this deal. But let's talk about that nineteen seventy deal. So you have a very industrious nation um, by the by the nineteen seventies recovered from the war. Third, I think the third largest economy at that time, and it needed cheap resources, cheap gas. Well, who's better to sell it to Germany than the far distant neighbor in the East, Russia, or at that time, the Soviet Union? What's interesting and what's political about this is the following. Um, the chancellor at the time, Willy Brandt, was the first social democrat to be in office at the Federal Republics, um, in the history of the Federal Republic of Germany. So before that, you only had Christian Democrats who um, governed, and they governed by a strict policy, um, look towards the West and discard the East. Um, the Brandt administration said, we have to do a new policy towards the East, so we have to do what they called Ostpolitik, um, or East, Just it's translated literally as East politics. And the, the idea behind this was what we say in German, Wandel durch Handel, so um, change through trade. The idea was that um, if we get Russia on board by tying them into our economic system, then we can also bring political change. And this idea of Wandel durch Handel, of course, very much uh, driven then in the Schröder years, but also something that Merkel adhered to. I mean, I remember being at events where Merkel told the audience that she always, this being East Germany, remember she did not live in the West and the deal that I was talking about was a Western deal, but the East was also supplied with Russian gas. And she always said, listen, we always had reliable, cheap Russian gas. So this mentality of Russia being our supplier goes deep and it goes far. Um, but the policy initiative and the idea that cheap Russian gas is a good thing has transmitted through the Social Democrats all throughout the years. And I actually would say that since February 24th of this year would be the time that, um, <laughs> obviously, Christian, I think you'll talk about this later in the show, but former Chancellor Gerhard Schröder has taken a hard hit for being a Putin friend. Um, and um, But the point is that... Um, the the alliance towards Russia, the friendliness towards Russia, has always been something that you found on the on the social democratic edge of the political spectrum. Whereas the Christian democracy was always more 
transatlantic or Atlanticists, they were more prone to be pro-American. But during the Merkel years, obviously this has changed with Nord Stream, um, with Merkel being very pro-Nord Stream. Um, so we can say all in all that um, this is not just energy politics, but this is geopolitics. And um, up until this year, I would say that um, that has been a pretty much a, uh, a silver lining through the whole time. I find my chip in here. Um, I do think that you're absolutely right. This has become the consensus in German politics overall that... Um, Nord Stream, for example, was deemed a good thing by the Christian Democrats. Um, without Merkel's help or support, it would never even have worked out that much. Like, keep in mind, especially for the American listeners or viewers, um, that not just the Biden administration, but already the Trump administration, they were really adamant about um, not making this deal happen or basically uh, to keep it from happening further. So... The fact that Angela Merkel actually um, showed some, how do you say, some internal willpower and actually decided on keeping this going is something that that's like something special in, I don't want to say in German history, but that's kind of something special in European history overall or in like recent German political affairs. Um, but if I may chime in with a bit from the, as always, Austrian perspective, um, this whole Wandel durch Handel, or as you mentioned, Fabian, uh, tra change through trade, I think it has proved something kind of successful for, for the most time. Like, um, there have been more contacts in the 70s, um, thanks to the Brandt administration anyways, uh, between Eastern Europe, or basically between Eastern Germany and Western Germany. And I think without the trade, this would not have happened. I don't want to say that it was necessary for the fall of communism, but I think it was something that was um, that was noticed in a positive way by the people that Eastern Germany suddenly was not just the country across the Iron Curtain or behind the Berlin Wall, but that the brothers and sisters of the West Germans actually could be like could be addressed in politics again. Because until then, just adding some more history, um, the so-called Hallstein Doctrine. Um, was in place, which meant that West Germany um, did not take part in anything like in any international organization or so that recognized Eastern Germany. So um, Germany had this kind of one state solution approach, you'd nowadays say, um, in ignoring the existence of East Germany and ignoring the existence of an East German government. Thank you, Lucas. Um, probably, um, I would like to probe into that, so so that, that that's um, there's an interesting way to to look at it. So probably the German reunification might not have happened the way it had happened had it not been for what we called Wandel durch Handel, sort of transformation by trade. Or and there come the many critics of Brandt's politic politics. So many critics called it catering towards the East, kotowing. A lot of people weren't happy uh, were unhappy Brandt going on his knee in front of the the memorial in front of the ghetto of Warsaw and signing off that from now on Germany forgoes the eastern territories. There were plenty of writings on German walls saying Brand an die Wand, meaning Brand against the wall, um, you know, as in uh, getting, meeting um, the final firing squad. So so that's how people, how strongly other people felt about that time. And I have not heard much discussion about this because as, as usual, and there was a really interesting interview 
um, by a Dutch national um, on Fox News with Tucker and um, Eva Vlaardingerbroek. And she pointed out that the Netherlands is a very compromised society. So is Germany in a lot of ways. So the question has never been asked, hey, have we actually prolonged communism's fall by actually given a lot of um, loans to East Germany at the time by having all these trade deals with Russia? I mean, that's a question that could be asked that has never been asked. I've never seen many economists asking that question, certainly not Germans, I'm not sure if there were American um, economists who were musing about that. Probably Lucas, and before we kind of dive into the current situation, um, you are very much a connoisseur of all things Schroeder and all things Merkel. Um, That's correct. So the Merkel and the Schroeder years, oh no, let's go for the Schroeder years. The Schroeder years and dealing with Putin, how were they different from what then happened under Merkel? We have hinted it, but we want to spell it out. Uh, for an American audience? Well, I couldn't really point it out to one certain point, but I'd probably say that um, the Schroeder approach was just a more direct one. Merkel did not manage new politics or did not bring or tie Germany and Russia closer together, but that was something that Schroeder did. Merkel, I think, was just the, the person who was keeping up everything that Schroeder invented in this regard, like nothing new happened, um, but mainly keeping up what Schroeder did. Like, would you agree on that? Well, so there's one really interesting thing I would say, and we're going to go into Angela Merkel later. A very enigmatic woman in a lot of ways. I think she lacked a compass in a lot of ways. And she always went along with what she thought was the prevailing direction of the political winds, as it were. So Schroeder's approach was, he was very much respecting Russia as a country. He was very much respecting Putin. He was always emphasizing their Männerfreundschaft, their man friendship, their manly friendship. And they were always like, they're both like small, but you know, sort of the chunky guys and giving each other bear hugs and got along well. Schroeder said very positive things about Putin that always didn't hold quite up to scrutiny. He's like, he's a Democrat beyond belief. The way that in the West we would define flawless you know, rule of, I mean, he's rule of law, Democrat. like an internally yeah. flawless Democrat. Exactly. He used a term that you only use for diamonds when you look at them. He's like, this is, you know, and beyond reproach, like as a Democrat. But what he did, he's like, he he ramped up the um, energy, uh, the energy deliveries from Russia to Germany. And, and I mean, for, from a German perspective, economically, that did us plenty of good, you know? I mean, yes, Russia is not, not quite a neighboring country, but it's a lot closer than, say, the United States and probably at that time less volatile than the Middle Eastern um, oil. So, and at the same time, he respected Russia. And I think it was this carrot and, 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 and mutual dependency that where he's, we respect you, and we're dependent on your oil, so let's move forward. And at that time, Putin was very, very positive. And I think we see an evolution of Putin where he was a lot more relaxed about certain things than he became later. And he kind of, well, Russia was weak in those days, militarily, economically. And we don't want to get too much into um, that. You know, probably that there might be some, something positive to be said about Putin, how he kind of restored Russia from a country that was flat out ignored to a country that was somewhat listened to. Let's not go into that down that rabbit hole today. But at least with Schroeder, it was a respected partner that kind of time and again approached NATO with its partnership for peace. And hey, can we do something together? So Schroeder seemed to have worked 
come Merkel, you, Lucas is right. Merkel carried on a lot of Schroeder Christian, policies. Christian, yeah. Can I say something really interesting just real quickly about, the, about those do. years? I, I think there is a really interesting time frame between the year 2001 and 2003. I mean, if you if you look at that world stage, you had, if you think about it, like the, if you look at those G7 meetings, you had pretty much a meeting of alpha males you had bunga bunga berlusconi in italy you had <laughs> you know you had you had um jacques chirac you had um i mean you, you had a, a whole load of these guys and before bush and schroeder had this um more or less struggle or 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 coming coming away while they they were you know disagreeing about the iraq war between or after 9-11 up to Iraq, Putin was in Berlin. And I mentioned this in our first episode. He spoke very well of the West. He spoke very well of, of the United States. He said, we have to fight terror together. We have a common threat. That's radical Islam. Um, we, 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 we should tackle these problems together. And when Bush was in Berlin in 2002, in the summer of 2002, um, it's also a speech that was really very much um, forgotten. But it was a very interesting speech because Bush said he's on his way to Moscow and to 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 work with Putin. I think to to answer to those offers. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the biggest blunder of the Bush administration, the, being the Iraq War, tore everything apart, and you saw the world sort of. Um, disengage or that alliance that could have been made um, fall into shambles. So I do, I mean, a lot of people will argue now after the invasion of the Ukraine that, you know, Putin always had this vision. I want to challenge that notion. I do want to say there was a, a opportunity for the north northern hemisphere, if you will, the OECE states or whatever from the United States uh, to Europe and, and Russia having an opportunity to unite. It was in that time window, but the leaders then blew it. So, um, but that's, that's my personal belief. I think that there's, there's definitely um, some, something in, interesting there. Um, the, this, this sudden shift um, and this 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 window that was generally open, and I mean Merkel, and we're going to go into that for like for quite a while. She's always been a specialist of moving along, as we said, with these kind of things, harvesting, and then suddenly, um, when the wind blew in, in another way, um, she turned this. But there's one really interesting thing: Merkel would probably push back, and Merkel was really good at pushing a certain narrative about herself in the media. So suddenly there was this shift. So Putin charmed the German Parliament with incredible German. And then you could read roughly 10 years later, the, the, around 2014, when, Germ when Merkel was the most hated woman in Europe because of the Greek crisis and all. And then a lot of newspapers asked, who is this enigmatic woman? And there was this really interesting article, I think in a German newspaper, where, where they were like, whilst, whilst um, Schroeder was blinded by his man-fat friendship with Putin, Merkel saw through that. And she said, this is just another KGB kind of type, a KGB kind of type. And then so, so it's, it's kind of interesting where she kind of acted in a certain way. And then suddenly, as not just Germany, but, but a lot of the West suddenly became verbally more antagonistic towards Russia. That's the uh, direction that this woman went 
the web went in. But probably if we quickly look in, into the present uh, situation, just to give American viewers a flavor of where we are with the German. Let, let me step in there real, yes, real quick, question. I think that um, I've had this theory for a while uh, that uh, at some point in this period of change you're talking about, I think Putin, and when he started arming and after the Russo-Georgian War, I really think he started seeing the West in a different light in a more, because I think he has a very good intelligence operation. And this globalist thing we've seen has been happening for several decades. I think he saw a rival gang, a rival corrupt kleptocracy brewing. And this is when we started to see the separation. And I think it's kind of like, you know, I, I say gangs of New York, where the two you know, one of the two five families started maybe facing each other off. That's kind of my sense of the whole time period. I just throw that out there. Probably, um, Lucas, Fabian, first your thoughts on that. Mm -hmm. My thoughts, I would just um, quote um, the, the Russian patriarch Kirill, who's obviously been uh, much criticized in, in the media lately for, for sticking mm -hmm. up for, 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 I almost want to say his boss, but let's keep it mm -hmm. that, um, um, mm -hmm. the friendship between Putin and, and, and Kirill. Look, you got to remember that he was, um, the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church was a religious, can you say refugee in the West during the Cold War? I mean, he lived in Switzerland. He was in Geneva. Um, he always saw the West as a Christian refuge. Now he views the West as an anti-Christian hostile spot towards people of mm -hmm. faith who believe mm -hmm. in family, who believe in God. So obviously, uh, Todd, I do think in a sense that it, it, it seems like a, a transformation has taken place. And I mean, and it, it's not just the leadership. I think it's a it's a it's a bigger conglomerate of this mm -hmm. whole thing. So but but there is some truth to that. But I still I still have to pinpoint it. And I think it's hard to pinpoint. But mm -hmm. obviously, we have seen a complete shift of so much, so many of the opportunities that actually existed at the end of the Cold War, so many of those ideas and what we once mm -hmm. represented, right, as the mm -hmm. West, mm -hmm. seems to be completely gone. Yeah, at least in the leadership. Uh, I, I just think that there's something we weren't aware of what, at least in from the U.S. perspective, after what we're seeing in the U.S. right now and in Biden trying to turn over our sovereignty to the WHO, which is essentially the CCP. I mean, we didn't know this was going on, obviously, until two years ago, really. I mean, we knew something was wrong. We knew our debt was going up, but we just thought the Republicans were weak. We didn't realize the Republicans were controlled opposition for this uniparty. So right. I just think at some point, and, and again, I'm, I've said this on Tucker, I, I'm not supporting Putin and his what he's doing inside of Russia. I'm looking at it from a real politics point of view, where I think he said, whoa, these people are just as bad as we are. And they want to destroy me and take my resources. And therefore, we want to break away. And that's yeah. what I think happened. Just a yeah, thought. I think, I think this is this is totally right, Todd. And thank you for the, mm -hmm. for bringing up the realpolitik term, because um, mm -hmm. What we sh should not forget is the fact that um, the Putin presidency has been going on for like the last 22 years after all. Like, mm -hmm. of course, there's been a video between there, but that was only so Putin could actually um, sit during his term limit, you know? So mm -hmm. I think 
Fabian mentioned this before with the whole G7 crew being like this alpha male kind of thing, like with Berlusconi, also with Chirac still back when Putin's first term was around. So I think Putin has not changed. Putin still has this policies and ideas in place that were commonplace around the end of the 90s. Um, the rest of the world has changed. And I think that the whole situation where we are, so, where we in the West have such a hard time um, comprehending this, is the fact that for most people here in the West, um, the recent developments have been a political defeat, but they have not been an economical defeat. So I don't want to say that people have a better living than they had 20 years ago, but it's been roughly the same. Only now do we see the cracks in the facility. But as of right now, you can see that despite the bad politics that has been in two decades in the West, people still like had, had a good livelihood. In Russia, I think that that's a totally different situation. Um, whenever politics were good towards the Russian people or were good for the Russian people, they could feel an economic upwind. When it was bad, they could feel a downwind way easier because they do not have this, like they don't have that strong foundation that we in the West have, I think. So Russian, like what Putin does translates into reality way easier and way faster than it does with our countries. And so what I wanna, what I wanna point out is just the fact that we have changed. Putin has not changed. And I think that only now conservatives do realize that they have changed. Like Todd, you mentioned this before about um, so-called controlled opposition. I think so many people, especially so many Republicans, thought that everything was all right until they were presented with the last president who had them, like, who showed them that they'd have to make a choice of either being like um, the conservative of the old kind or basically one of the so-called rhinos. And I think for decades people just ignored that situation yes. whereas in russia you couldn't ignore that because there's putin and, and like everyone else um might even have been worse like look at uh, mr shirinovsky who mm -hmm. once suggested of splitting up ukraine between poland and russia and nuking the remainder <laughs> yeah so I think... uh, just finishing up so i think the the real politics part that todd mentioned is the solution to the whole thing um, Russia's thing, Russia thinks in influence spheres, and Kissinger thinks in spheres of influence. And uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski introduced that kind of to a general um, readership, I think. And we in the West, as we're sitting in our kind of ivory tower, we just don't want to realize that spheres of influence are still a thing. Like, take France, um, Southern Sahara, France, uh, Southern Sahara, Africa is um, an area where France projects its power. A lot of the world is an era where the U.S. protects its power. Um, only Germany, or like, let's say it this way, only Western Europe thinks that power projection is a bad thing per se. Yeah, I think, Lucas, you're touching on something really interesting, what I tried to hint at the beginning, probably anecdotally pointing back. I mean, it's funny enough how sometimes you mentioning something like the Georgian War brings back memory. So at the time, 2005, I was uh, part of the German army reserve team in military pentathlon, CIOR, and we, we got tons of American sort of um, special forces returning and competing before they, they went back. And there was one guy um, in there, and I'm like, yeah, you know, what? he's like, yeah, I'm just coming back from uh, uh, down downrange, I think they call, uh, called it, sort of a mission. I'm like, what about, if I may ask, he's like, Georgia. And I'm like, like, Georgia, Georgia? And he's like, yes, Caucasus. Georgia. And I'm like, well, okay. I'm like, what are you? Oh, you know, it's kind of training and they might just join NATO. I'm like, 
interesting. It's kind of mm. these, these things you kind of find something interesting. Your brain is like, let's find that for later. And then, and then, yeah, I mean, then indeed, 2008, the, the war broke out. And I think this is where we see probably a shift in Putin where he's like, they're not quite believing their own <laughs> ideals or they, they hide it much better and cloak it under human rights. But probably, I, I think also at that point, the, the conversation in Germany shifted. Oh, look how terrible they're treating um, their neighboring countries and then forcing them their, their will on them. And I mean, it's the same. I was just in Germany two weeks ago. And uh, people are like, well, what, I mean, Ukraine is a sovereign country. Why won't the Russians let them join NATO? And I'm like, well, I don't know what the, you know, um, I mean, other countries are very sensitive towards, you know, having um, other countries joining military alliances, you know, say Cuba, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Cuba, Grenada, Panama. So, so I'm like, and they're like, well, so are you saying Putin is right to invade? No, I'm not saying that. But, you know, in terms of looking at realpolitik, I think John Mearsheimer had the most helpful model where he spoke about um, strategic empathy or something along those lines where you're like, I don't need to agree with the opponent can sort of say, well, if this is the way he sees it, how is he going to react? If he generally believes that Ukraine is that absolutely pivotal buffer state um, has mm -hmm. been, will always be, how will he react? And I'm you don't have to here. agree, but you have to understand. Yes, yes. I mean, that, that's that, that I think. And, yeah. and, and in Germany, we have this term. It's actually called Putin Versteher, which translates as to Putin understander, if you will. <laughs> this term is a negative connotation. And I heard a journalist, she's actually very much... Um, well, she's not as 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 um, uh, demagogic on this issue. She said, since when has the term understanding something been a negative connotation? So in other words, if you understand the way somebody else thinks doesn't mean you understand them in the sense of you, you, you know, you agree with them. You just you, you can, you're you, supposed you not to understand them after all. Baby. And, you're and supposed Christian... not to understand him. Pardon? I said the, the whole idea behind this term is that you're supposed not to understand him because he's apparently doing the, the unspeakable, one could say. Right. No, and I, I just want to say, Kristen, that, that John Mearsheimer um, uh, thing you mentioned, I, I think out of all um, analyses of what has happened, John Mearsheimer gave a lecture on this, I think, six years ago. Was it? Or, I, I mean, I remember listening to it four years ago, and it was the best prediction of what is now happening so he was spot on and and Mearsheimer of course um is clearly clearly pointing at NATO and clearly pointing um now if you will at the Biden administration saying this is foolish this is completely foolish that um NATO expansion would do any good and and I do want to mention this because I, I said this earlier um this is a, a a little controversy that has stirred up here in Germany we have um the former Lord, first Lord Mayor of Hamburg, Klaus von Donani, who um, wrote a book, it's called National Interest in, in German, National Interest. And he's also clearly blaming NATO. And here's the, here's the more interesting thing about this. He is clearly pointing the fingers at the Washington foreign policy establishment. Now, we don't have some kind of a, you know, conspiracy nut here. We have a former... Um, very um, sophisticated, sort of the conservative wing of the Social Democrats. 
Klaus von Nonani. I mean, this guy, this guy comes from a no noble family. His his father was Hans von Nonani, a a a, a officer and in, in the resistance to Hitler. He actually died um, after the January 20th plot. Um, Donani's uncle is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, so we're talking about somebody who has standing in our society. And he is clearly pointing the fingers at the foreign policy establishment in Washington saying this, you are responsible. The responsibility relies in your hands. This is, this is a inter-European mess and don't provoke it and don't stir it up. So and, and of, of course, of course, people are saying this is anti-American and what are you doing and, and how, how dare you, how dare you be on Putin's side with this? And the politics in, in Berlin are very much stirred up about this. But I think that's an interesting sign that we actually have somebody who points this out and names it by the name and and i think there's some truth to that the, the the foreign policy establishment in washington is a bunch of people that i never knew about until um actually the trump years when i started reading into what these guys are and you have basically you know people that come from ivy league schools that go into think tanks then work in the department to serve the uniparty to advise both sides um, and they all think the same. And they admit it. That's the other thing. They absolutely when you have a, a situation in the U.S., and I'm wondering if you have it in Germany, where we're at the point in time where part of the society has a real cognitive dissonance, and they will not be able to see what they're actually doing, except the few around the margins so far. And, and it to do because it would blow up their whole worldview for decades. Do you see that in Europe as well? Just curious. Well, I think I think um, let's put it this way. I think the disengagement mm -hmm. that that once took place in the United States between what really happened and how things are um, was much bigger. I think because of that philosophy that politics is something, you know, in a democracy you vote, but our main task is to get on with our lives and to, um, okay, so we lost Christian. Anyways, but the, the, the point is, I think people were much more focused on, 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 you know, how many MVP rings Tom Brady has or whatever. And then people started waking up over here. I think since we don't have small talk in Germany, people go mm -hmm. right into the heavy deal of politics. I think politics has always been very much part of people's lives. So I don't mm. see that as heavy and as intense as I do in the United States. Even with the Russian gas issue and the Russian energy dependence. I mean, do you see it there? Sorry, I'll let no, you talk. No, because people were, well, <laughs> people were pretty much pro Russian gas until the yeah. war happened. But they yeah. were, they were, they were, they were very, um, informed about it. And I'm going to chime in on this point. I do hope that you can hear me uh, well despite the background noise. Yep. So re regarding, um, as Fabian mentioned this with the Russian gas in Germany, I think the main issue is that we just have no alternative. Like came 2011, came Fukushima, came Merkel, uh, a physicist, a PhD in physics, deciding to switch off all the nuclear power plants. Um, Switching off all the nuclear power plants in Germany, and there has been no alternative. Like the alternative actually in Germany has been coal. Now the problem is the coal that's mined in Germany is lignite, which is the least efficient coal. 
So basically what he ended up with was obviously Russian gas in order to act to like to maintain the energy supply in Germany. So we basically brought ourselves into this and Christian wrote, wrote down a good number, which is 8.3. 8.3 billion dollars have been paid in the first two months of this um, Russian engagement in Ukraine by the German taxpayer, effectively, to Russia, to prop up the ruble, which is now in better standing as it has been before that operation started. So I think we're at a point where the German response at least is not working because it has not been working for the last 11 years. And I think energy policy is another key. Christian, just one second, one second. Our, uh, yep. Todd, to answer to that, actually, our wake-up call was the refugee crisis. Because mm. if you if you look at Christian, Christian can testify to this. He was pretty much what you were mainstream, right? And then the refugee crisis hit, and you started really waking up and going into the details. So that was 2015 was our wake-up moment. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, that's true. A little anecdote to that: um, I left Germany in June 2015 to um, go to the US for some time. When I came back to Germany in early 2016, the country has not been the same ever since. There has been a shock, and you could tell. Yeah, um, pro probably before I go into that, Todd, originally your question has been this cognitive dissonance, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's, it's the classical meme online um, where this non-player character has this total meltdown cognitively. No, diversity is our strength. Um, and uh, and saying yeah, uh, you, you, no, Joe, Joe Biden is the best, and 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 Kamala is the best, and and you never never mind what they actually do. Um, so yeah. so this this cognitive dissonance, I would very much say yes, that is there in Germany. Um, again, coming back to uh, that really interesting interview that uh, the, the viewers, if they have sub uh, subscribed to Fox Nation, sh should watch with uh, the legal philosopher Eva Vladingerbroek, where she says. The interesting thing about the Netherlands, and in the Netherlands more so than Germany, but also Germany, it's a very conformist society. Mm -hmm. um, and there, in a conformist society, where, and I think she also said it, where we do not have a Fox News, where we do not have mm -hmm. a vibrant podcasting scene, anything to what is in the United States. Yes, in the United Kingdom, we've got GB News, but that's also not, not really good. Um, they're, they're way too cautious. Um, in that society, and again, I'm always flabbergasted when I'm back in Germany from the United Kingdom, and you actually push back. Like, for, for instance, I had an uncle of mine, otherwise smart guy. He's like, well, you know, I mean, um, uh, he praised our, which, which I call our cognitively challenged um, foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, who not only lied and cheated about her whole resume and has, has never worked in any actual serious job in her life, not even as a barista, you know, I mean... We can give uh, Alexander occasional cortex, at least that, but um, that woman hasn't. And he said, well, she will go into history as one of our greatest foreign ministers. And I'm like, what are you talking about? All that woman does is finding umpteen synonyms about Putin is literally Hitler. He's like, well, in 20 years, you will see, they will see her every bit as iconic and as angelic as Angela Merkel is, uh, uh, as saintly oh. as Angela Merkel is seen abroad. And I'm like, you don't really watch many foreign news, do you? And I mean, people have, have a meltdown. They're like, no, I mean, she had a brilliant foreign policy and she was always so calm. And, and, and I think, and Fabian Lucas, let, let, we can dive 
deeper into that before we actually revisit that figure, Angela Merkel. Interesting in a lot of ways, but why that is. And I think Germany is a fundamentally apolitical country. Um, for instance, I was member of the, um, the young conservatives, which would be like the young Republicans when I was 14. And we never really quite had a conversation about what conservatism is. I've never heard of Edmund Burke until I actually studied in the United States, for instance. So like this intellectual conservatism, it's like, yeah, well, we want slightly less taxes than the other guys. And we are slightly prouder to be German, but that's about it. So, so, so that was the thing in the 1990s, 1980s, when at least the social Democrats were still sane um, and then pretty patriotic as well, but we were slightly more than they, and we wanted slightly less state than, than they did. So I would say Germany is a slightly apolitical society, whereas I would say the United States is always from its foundation, very much the founding fathers gave a lot of thought what kind of republic they wanted to be. And there were antagonists, you know, within, mm -hmm. uh, you know, from Jefferson and Jackson and, and whatnot. But I think the ideological debate has always been much, much richer in the United States and to a degree in the United Kingdom. And in Germany, both were, and the Netherlands, they were both fundamentally harmonious societies where we had a pretty competent elite by and large, we had a very competent bureaucracy. Um, and so politics was something we stayed out of. And that really never quite, quite arose. And so, so yes, you very much have um, absolute meltdowns. I mean, it's funny with the Europeans. I mean, I once in the United Kingdom had two Dutch exchange students who said, oh my, my God, we are so afraid Trump is literally Hitler. And then I advanced a totally different view. And then you had the total non player character and they constantly wanted to pigeonhole me. So, so what are you? Are you the far right? I'm like, I'm not giving you a label. You need to kind of distill that yourself. Um, so, so yes, it is there. And probably, I mean, Lucas already pointed it out and why don't we revisit that figure of Angela Merkel? Because well, let me ask real quick, like did, does, did, German, did, Germans, did Germans wake up and say, Wow, we're dependent on Russian gas. Our military is incompetent. Uh, we're part of a socialist <laughs> tyranny in Europe, and we've de you know we've had radical population demographic change that's caused massive crime. I mean, do do, do, do people wake up and see that? Yes, uh, German conservatives do wake up to this every single day, and then they're like, okay, maybe next time I'm a conservative, it's going to be different. Maybe this time, Merkel actually, maybe this time actually she found a solution to it. The same thing why um, the nowadays um, party chairman, Friedrich um, Metz, he has not provided any solution to these things either. No, hard and still. His big topic right now is to bring a so-called quota, women's quota, into the party. They want 50% women by 2025, and then for five years, they're going to look at how that works. This is like what was promised was someone who's against that quota, what you got, and someone who's actively introducing that quota, quoting that, um, yeah, it might not be the worst of ideas. You're right on the political spectrum, but I do have to say, Todd, that that um, at least the um, Germany's most influential and largest newspaper, Bild, which has always been, uh, 
well, you can't say conservative, but it's 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 more been center, more or less center right, mm-hmm. um, very anti-communist, very pro-American, um, and pro-Israel, by the way, as mm-hmm. well. Um, Build has recently torched Merkel, and I think it's good. But this has happened after the um, Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So all of a sudden, people are saying, at least in the media. Uh, in, in the conservative media saying that Merkel's policies are in shambles and they were a day, they were a disaster for our country from energy dependent. I mean, you mentioned the whole deal. So, yeah. Well, just let me say, I'm not throwing spears. I mean, we have the same issues in the U.S. So people no, like, but I agree with I've said these things um, during the whole time and people would always be very, very naive to them. I remember even having conversations saying, look, we need a strong military. We need a strong military. And I remember people saying, yeah, but we don't need that anymore. Uh, Yeah, yeah, we do. (laughs) Right. At least Mm -hmm. an effective military, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not Mm -hmm. something that can't, you know, field anything at the moment. Mm -hmm. So um, and even even um, the the head of the um, the hair, so the the army itself has said "We're, we're standing basically blank. We have we can't do anything. My problem with the whole generals would be, well, then why didn't you say this all along? Why did, you right. know, these, these are the, the, the guys that went along with the whole, you know, changing ranks to gender neutral terms and, and stuff. And then Russia invades and all of a sudden they say, oh, we're standing blank. So um, um, I, I wish you would have had more courage in those days to speak up of, of the threats and dangers. And now people are coming out of their, you know, hidden corners and saying, we're in a, we're in a really, really bad situation, which we are. Well, so are we? I, I, probably, I probably might be the most negative one. Truth be told, I thought 2015, where I wrote long letters, um, I had friends who served in Afghanistan and were um, witness to heinous honor killings of Afghan women's and women. And then you saw hundreds of thousands of those young men coming across the border. And I wrote, wrote to every parliamentarian who would hear it. And then there was the, the, the infamous now um, sort of mass rapes in front of the Dome of Cologne um, as, as a place, iconic place. And I thought that's certainly going to wake people up. It didn't. And it's, to me, it's amazing mm. because most Germans live a fundamentally good life. Most Germans live in the suburbs of small towns and i mean the relatives who i visit live in a small town and a german's peculiarity which makes germany so good um is at the same time it's prevention about waking up too soon so most of my relatives who say all these good things about they're like um what what's your problem i mean we are living really well don't we and i'm like yeah you guys do but you don't live in the cities you do not uh, train commute and, and such so they live in a village of three thousand inhabitants in the German countryside, but they've got five world-class companies in the in their back garden: Carl Zeiss, Siemens, Ford. You you name it; they're all there. So they have high-paying jobs, live in the countryside. So that that is holds true for many Germans. Probably the most decentralized of the um, big industrialized countries. So and we still have this that, very decentralized. That, that, is a, that is a really good point so you that make. Keeps us quite well. Um, but probably, yeah, so, 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 so there's that, why they don't wake up. And then the other uh, thing is, um, it is really the, the media, and you never hear, and, and because it, it is sort of like you have, uh, compared to an actual body, you've got somebody who never smoked, 
who never drank, who worked out well, and then sort of you can take in a lot and the population doesn't notice. And one of the most interesting bits about the interview with Eva Fladingerbrück with uh, Tucker Carlson, which, which, he, which he totally didn't seem to notice, but I'm like, hey, that's where the, where, where the meat is. She's like, well, there is a new um, right-wing Dutch channel, but it might lose its government subsidies. And I'm like, whoa, this is really interesting for an American government. Let's hop onto this. Um, so kind of like your Canadian friends in the Netherlands, pretty much everybody gets subsidies of some sort. If you're an artist mm -hmm. in the Netherlands or you declare, you declare yourself an artist, you receive a an artist stipend without that having produced many von Hochs in modern days. But hey, that's a different issue. But the same holds mm -hmm. true for newspapers. And I mean, I know, for, for instance, friends, once they graduate from college, and ah, it's really hard and very expensive to get a, like your own flat like on a, on a beginner salary. So then the state gives them some money. So, so this is the kind of societies we're talking about. And meaning many, many Germans, particularly the slightly better informed, um, like listen to the state media. They all tell, tell you that. So there's the Tagesschau, the Daily View, which is state-controlled media. And that's the view they hear. And I mean, how, 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 how government critical do you think they're going to report? So, I'm not. I'm not really worried about losing our Biden subsidies because we have none at CD Media. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's such an alien concept. Well, not if you're NPR, but but certainly to American viewers, that even mm -hmm. you can be a right-wing channel and you get um, government subsidies. Um, I think there's something really interesting. Would you, uh, which prevents Germans from from waking up? Um, I mean, so. Historical, there was this this era where there were a bunch of revolutions in Germany, and then people retreated into the comfort of their homes. There were tons of paintings that spoke about the Biedermeier era. And I think there is something like this going on where people just don't notice, or they're like, well, who do you want to elect? And that, that is also one of the most pernicious things that the media has done. They're like, well, if you if you are, if you do think that none of the parties is to the right enough of that issue. Who do you want to vote for? For the AFD? Oh my God. I mean, they're literally Nazis and they haven't done themselves a lot of favor by actually large parts of them being actual Putin fanboys. So that's why I don't think, um, oh, and I, and I would like to hear Fabian and Lucas. So the one thing that is the thought stopper on government, because the one party that still rises in power, even though, in my opinion, they have caused most of this, is the Green Party. And for all practical purposes, Merkel has been a Green Chancellor at the very That's latest. True. Uh, at the very latest after Fukushima. Um, you know, she's always been. She's always been because uh, this is why I need to chime in for a second. And since you mentioned this before, that um, the German dirtiest. I like it's just same, same, but different, as indifferent for lower taxation. No, uh, Todd. This is something the American viewership needs to know. All recent tax rises in Germany in the last 25 years were under Christian Democrat rule. They were not under Schroeder. They were under Merkel. Yeah. yeah. I, think, I think this is a really good point. That brings me to that green bit. And I would like to tickle that out of Lucas and Fabian. So essentially, the, the one most pernicious ideology for Germany is the green ideology, yet the green party keeps rising. Energy prices are going up. I mean, you shared an article with us where even the, the person responsible for the German electricity and gas regulator warned of rising energy prices. So you would think that's the end of all green dreams. Yet, um, the Green Party rises in popularity. And I think this is the one thing 
that prevents Germans from waking up. They're like, well, um, well, obviously we, the climate and everything, we need to fix that first or everything else is a mute point. And this part has been drilled into people and that already started in elementary school with me. I mean, this whole green movement, this fundamentally anti-humanist movement, we just back a lot further and probably a couple of thoughts from Lucas and Fabian's side and then Todd, just push up towards whatever you would like to drill mm -hmm. on if you want to drill on yes. deeper into Merkel where she came from. But yeah, both both Fabian and Lucas, what, that, that green thing, that seems to be the thought stopper. I, I absolutely agree. I, I'd just like to point one thing out of first. Before you introduce us to uh, State Media. Now, I do have to say, um, just because Tiger Show is run by the German, or is funded by the German government, it did not always mean that it has been government controlled. This is something that we need to keep in mind. In, like, Tiger Show as a news show exists since the 50s. However, in the 50s, 60s, up until the 90s or early 2000s, no one, not even real conservatives, complained about not being represented by them. Like, <clears throat> they even mentioned when, um, when the meetings of the so-called Vertriebenverbände, so the displaced people's associations in Germany, you know, the former Silesian or Western Prussian or and now this Poland people, when they gathered, Tagesschau actually reported on that. Tagesschau reported on how Bavarian politicians like Phil Leidy or something Schnauz were holding their speeches there. So, um, like government funded, does not necessarily mean in Europe that it's also government controlled. However, that has become less and less of a distinction nowadays because, like, back in the old days, before Billy Brum, even during Billy Brum, to bring us back to the beginning of the discussion, there has been some restraint by the government, there's been some restraint by the executive. But what we've seen, like, just the same as Obama in his last year's ruling for executive orders only, the same thing has happened in Germany by the executive basically being handed all the powers by the legislative and judicial powers and just an executive government running. And that, like, so this means everything culminates at those 15, 16 people who make up the German federal government. And now look at these people who make up the federal government. Of course, this has been a green government for the last 15 years. Yeah, but the, the green thing, I, I just wanted to say that um, when you look at the election results around Europe, um, you don't see much of a green wave. You know, look at the French. You see um, Marine Le Pen, um, uh, you know, making it to the second round. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who is basically an anti-German hating communist. Um, you know, you, you still have sort of that traditional left-right scheme when you look at um, um, the, the romanticized political nation of Germany, you see this bizarre green wave all over. And it's not just on the federal level, it's heavily on the state level. And I actually explain this, this phenomenon as part of like our national myth. Germans have always had a very 
strong tie towards the towards the uh, towards nature. I mean, the relationship with with the, the the mythical German forest, you know, goes to the 19th century. I mean, look at all the Wagnerian uh, operas. Richard Wagner was all of his operas were based on the idea of of going back to nature. Why was that? Well, during the Industrial Re Revolution, you know, Germany went from being an agricultural country to being one of the most industrial powerhouses on the world, and that obviously changed the whole landscape and i think a lot of people just couldn't handle it and they had this romantic view of nature actually being a form of salvation um and i i think somehow this has translated into the present and it's always been there and it's dominated german politics even you know in the 1970s you had fights about nuclear power and the i mean there were there were if you will there were wars going on about you know, building a new runway in Frankfurt at the airport and et cetera, et cetera. So, so, so all of these, all of these things have always had, I mean, even bicycles, bicycles have a holy status. People in Germany actually know how to ride bicycles, unlike Joe Biden. So, um, you know, um, there is a, there is a, um, there is this weird relationship that people have with nature. On the other hand, all of the romanticized vision and, and theory behind it aside, I do also think what Lucas said and Christian, if you constantly have that drilled into your head through state-run media, the climate, the climate, oh no, acid rain in the 80s. And I mean, Christian, you go, you know, you remember most of this, what I mentioned. I don't, I, I don't even remember that, but I just remember hearing it. Those old forests were going to be gone by the 1990s when I was like, uh, even in, 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 in Bible study, yeah. So, and, and, and even, even I remember when I lived in Germany and then moved to the States, I remember things that people said, like, I, I don't know, was it Jimmy Carter that came out with some like warnings in the seventies about climate change? People in Germany took that so serious. And I remember them moving to the States and nobody in the States knew about it. So, um, yeah, the, I, the, the, there just seems to be this bizarre, um, relationship that people do have and the the whole climate and environmental um action has a very 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 strong constituency i'll just say one thing um uh i i think that in the u.s and in europe we are headed for a major crisis financially in the u.s we are bankrupt and we're continuing to spend money and that cannot last our interest rates are rising soon the whole federal budget will be just to service debt if we can do that so yes and a lot of it's printed and that's going to cause hyperinflation so but i see all of this uh green climate change i think it's all a tool in the toolbox of someone else to destroy western civilization that's how i see it all and so we're all in different phases of waking up. If you look at the consequences of Obama, no matter what he said, it was destruction of our republic. If you look at the consequences of Merkel, it was destruction of Germany as you knew it. So that's what I look at. And I think the only savior is a reawakening of a Christian, peaceful, but strong nationalism and sovereign borders and people standing up for their own peoples. So, you know, in America, we're waking up. I'm going to be watching Europe. I, I'm worried about lots of Europe, but, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of this now or never moment for Western civilization, in my opinion. And I'll shut up with that. Yeah. I think that 
might be a good way to wrap up the episode. We didn't quite get to probably what some American viewers might us dig into, into the current European elites. So the first of all, where does somebody like Merkel come from? Fabian, we might even bring Henrich Robom in here. Um, he's written a book about it. So, so I mean, there, there, there are two schools of thoughts. There's sort of that of a communist plan. She planned it all along. That would be one school of thought. And I'm increasingly more amenable towards that, whereas for myself, seeing that woman being a political chameleon throughout her career, I think she was just in love with money or whatever the prevailing wind was. Um, but I think that's an entire episode where we could even look into the, the whole power structure of the European Union. Is it actually no. Germany's tool? Um, but which that would be a great episode, actually. That would be fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So let's make that the next episode, probably a couple of wrapping up thoughts from your side, Fabian and Lucas, and then um, we'll just start working on that episode. Well, I just, I just want to finish um, saying uh, that one of the most inspiring articles that I read from you was after the fire of Notre Dame Cathedral, where you mm -hmm. said that maybe a new spring of the West might rise. So let's, uh, mm -hmm. let's hope that, you know, um, people, patriots and um, uh, Christians and or or people mm -hmm. that believe in the Judeo-Christian ideals of of our society of our civilization. Well, let's face it; it's a civilization, mm -hmm. and it's a very mm -hmm. it was a very successful civilization. And it's mm -hmm. time to to really wake up. But we have to um, obviously we have to reform. Um, I'm I'm reading a book right now by Bill Lind. It's called Reforging Excalibur. I think it's a great book. It it actually points mm -hmm. out what you said. A debt crisis is going to you know, bring about some major reform. People in the United States, I mean, even the whole military establishment, you and your country are going to have to think about what we really need to spend money on, what are just mm -hmm. museum toys and what is actually necessary um, and what is necessary to protect our country. And we're, we're not only are we shifting from an economic standpoint, but we're our, our, the whole way we conduct warfare and what, what, what is necessary for the survival of the century is in essence, the survival of the state. So that's something we should also talk about in the future. But um, I am optimistic in the sense that there's still a few people out there. And remember for me, as somebody who believes in, in Christ and in Christianity, mm -hmm. I'm always inspired by the fact that it was 12 disciples that turned the, yep. the world on their head upside down. And they didn't, they didn't even have the technology that we had but they, they had power because of their beliefs. So um, that, that would three, be my... It's always the 3%. That's right. I agree. You know? I agree. So, See, sometimes yeah. I and I tend to be the most defeatist people in the room. Sometimes. Um, though at the same time, I do need to admit that we... Like, politicians keep on talking about the endgame for the last 25 years. And this is going to be lengthy endgame. So I think it has not been lost as of right now. So, you know, for the next episode, I'm looking forward to some renewed optimism. And yes, that's about myself. I think somebody said something about champagne in the background, Lucas. So, <laughs> that's <laughs> true. Yeah, that's, all. That's, um, so that's we know true. what you're up to. Uh, you're at the French laundry, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. Governor Newsom. In that sense, thank you so much as always, Todd, for this. It's, a, it's always been great fun. And I think we've got the, the homework laid out in front of us. I think something to really sink our teeth in. And um, that'll be the next episode. And well, hopefully see you all soon. Great. And just say that uh, this is all on podcast. You can go back and check out the old episodes. Um, so thank you, guys. Take care. Thank you.
Okay. Thank you, you too.